1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week is the season wrap for Season 7 of Electric Bookaloo. And so, I thought this should be a Littlefinger-heavy episode, since we say goodbye to Littlefinger at the end of Season 7. We'll be back in a couple weeks to do our final push and wrap up the first novel, A Game of Thrones. But this week I will be interviewing Professor Elizabeth Ranker. Elizabeth is a really interesting person because she's watched Game of Thrones 10 times or more. And she does a class at The Ohio State University, specifically a show only class. So she has a lot to say about the way that Littlefinger is portrayed in the show. And she and I get into an interesting conversation about whether or not Littlefinger is really motivated by his love for Kat. Because on the surface, I think that is the story that he's putting forth and the story that a lot of people believe about him. Elizabeth has a different take on this. Anyway, we talk a little bit about the show in general. We talk a little bit about Baelish's role in Ned's beheading. Okay, without further ado, here is Professor Elizabeth rancor. Elizabeth, I'm always fascinated with folks who have developed university experiences that are hinged on Game of Thrones. It sounds like yours is a little bit unique. I was wondering if you could talk about it.
2: Sure thing. Uh, Hi, everybody. Very, very happy to be here. And um Anthony, uh, this this story also includes an origin story of my own, which I know you and I talked a little bit about our interest in origin stories. Yeah. Um, The story of how I came to be teaching this class, which uh, began in 2019, is that I had not watched Game of Thrones at all because I had the impression that it was too violent for me, that I wouldn't be able to mm. stomach watching it. I really have a have difficulty watching violence. But I was in, uh, many many people can relate to this. I was in a family situation at a family gathering where people were watching Game of Thrones. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I thought, oh, okay, well, here it is. I, I guess I'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the loot train battle episode and uh-huh. you know what? I learned a couple things that day that were very important. First of all, I learned that I got enough visual cues from the show that I could avert my eyes when a head was about to come off. Oh. Uh, so that was good. I thought, OK, I can do that. Okay. And the other thing, I was stunned that the show was extremely literary. Hmm. And that is a term I do want to have a chance to slow down and and talk about a little bit more. But for starters, just to say, as a a professor of literature and someone who's been reading literature since way back when I was an English major um, and have dedicated my life to teaching it, I was very, very surprised that this extraordinarily popular show Mm -hmm. was at its core a very serious work of literature and so uh i I said to my son, who was a game of Thrones watcher, I said, "You know what um here are some of my ideas and i said i i could I could teach this uh, show, and he said, "You absolutely have to do that yeah. so that was that was how the class began that's when I started
1: yeah it. so yeah, let's talk about that what it, what does it mean to say that a show is a literary show in your mind
2: yeah, and it's a really important it's an important thing to talk about and i talk about it at length with my students the first day of class in part because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in our vocabulary, our Mm. cultural vocabulary. But I think very few people have a clear sense of what it means. And unfortunately, there's some baggage attached to it that I like to dispel the very first day with my students because I mean something very precise by it. Um, I know from just talking to people, you know, when you're in this line of work work and and people ask, what do you do? And so on, you talk about stuff, people can be very, very intimidated by literature. Mm. Um, Literature has a lot of baggage attached to it, especially a lot of people feel that it's kind of an elitist term and that it's a highly specialized term. sort of guild of interests and that it doesn't really apply to anything popular. Mm. Um, And and these are all misunderstandings. So I have, I'm very, very clear with students, very concise about what I mean when I say literary. And specifically what this means, there's a great way to connect it to Game of Thrones in particular, is it means that this is a work of art that Uh, is written in such a way that it's using very specific literary tools and techniques Hmm. that have been honed and practiced and repeated in literature across the ages. And literary writers are usually readers. They're usually avid readers. Mm -hmm. And so they learn this stuff by reading other writers. I mean, George R. R. Martin is a great example. He's a literary writer. Um, and there's a very common misunderstanding also that literature is by definition not popular. And this is not true. That literature is highbrow mm. and that popular writing is lowbrow. And, and that would not be accurate. So it's someone like George R. R. Martin um, who's been reading his entire life. He knows so many different literary works and he learns his craft in part from watching what other writers do. And we know in his case, he he applies many of those even situations, repurposes them Mm -hmm. in his own writing. But the thing to say about the show in particular, of course, it's based in the books, but the showrunners, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, they are both highly literary writers. So again, let me explain. These are guys who both got master's degrees at Trinity College, Dublin. That's mm-hmm. where they met. Yeah. And they got master's degrees in literature. In uh, Benioff got his writing about Samuel Beckett and Weiss got his writing about James Joyce. These are guys who care about literature mm-hmm. and they're reading, they're readers, right? So they're learning all this stuff that, that writers have done in the past. And then they both got master's of fine arts degrees okay. in the United States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you put the three of them together the showrunners and George R.R. R. Martin, and you just have uh, a team of people who know literature, they know how it works. Um, so in my class, I partly want to set up this idea that these are artists and they're craftsmen. And it would be like saying, you know, you have a carpenter who knows how mm-hmm. to make, uh, you know, a table. Other people couldn't make that same table. Uh, the craftsman knows how to do it but other people can appreciate the table once Mm -hmm. it's made Um, but the more you learn about making a table the more you can appreciate maybe how it's been created so by teaching yeah you know I'm teaching uh, my class as a general education class and a lot of what I teach them about literary techniques is new to them yeah but once I show them the techniques and I show them how they're being uh, played out in Game of Thrones they start to understand the show at an entirely new level and and one of the reasons why I wish all Game of Thrones fans could learn literary reading is because they love the show already they will get so much yeah. more out of it because they'll see all these additional layers and depths So that's what has really been working about the class
1: Yeah, but I feel like and you correct me if I'm wrong here you're almost flipping this on its head. What you're saying is that, Because George and the showrunners were literary-minded people, they were able to craft the art that they crafted. And so you'll be able to enjoy the, the show more if you understand how literature works. But you're doing this also in reverse. You're using the art, the visual art of Game of Thrones, to then teach your students something new about literature,
2: Yes. Correct. Absolutely. Right.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess going into this, are you thinking which one are you thinking that you're doing? Or are you you thinking you're going to do both at the same time?
2: I and let me make sure I understand what you mean by both. Um, if if by both you mean I am teaching them to have a much greater appreciation and pleasure in Game of Thrones, but also to better understand literature in general, is that what you mean by both?
1: Exactly. Yeah. It does both. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's one of the things that I, you know, I always read my course evaluations very carefully, but this is what students are telling me they are getting from mm-hmm. the class. Mm-hmm. So I'm very pleased with how it's working. And, um, you know, as someone who's been a an English professor for 30 years, um, I know that what is going to, this is going to stick with them when mm-hmm. they leave my class. We talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were teaching some um, I don't know, novels or something else that seemed very remote to them. I, I, might, I, might, I, I might hold on to their attention for the semester. Um, I'm confident when they leave this class that a lot of them are taking this understanding with them into their future lives. And, and uh, I'm really excited about that.
3: Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. For Prestige, me and Aaron are still extending our Shogun Afterglow with part three of our discussion of the 1980s TV miniseries. Last week absolutely shocked our sensibilities with Lord Toronaga doing the tango. What delights and horrors will await us this week? Then for Pulp, this Friday join us for our latest prep session for House of the Dragons season two as we take another look at the key differences between the text of Fire and Blood the on-screen action for season one and what they mean for the character's story and setting. Get your Valerian steel sharpened for the new season. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for bald move pulp or bald move prestige in your favorite podcast app.
1: At the risk of sounding like the old man who's yelling, get off my lawn or whatever. (laughs) I get a sense, Elizabeth, that television has ever been more popular, but because people are using their second screen at the same time, uh-huh. that it's almost like these great bits of storytelling in general, they're not understood very well. Uh-huh. People are not learning to read the screen closely. I agree. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about in what ways are you helping your students read the screen closely?
2: Okay, so when you read, say, read the screen, Anthony, do you mean um, read literally the visuals on the screen, or also taking into account the dialogue? Yeah, was, um, yeah, kind of both.
1: I, I think it would be both, it just whatever okay. you know, whatever tools that storyteller is is working with, right?
2: Yeah. Okay, so you know, after I sort of set up this whole idea about what literary reading means, and I I have to do a very strong pitch about the fact that. Um, and this is certainly no fault of their own, but um, they come to college never having learned how to do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: so I have to, I have to, to set the expectation that what I'm asking them to do, and I will show them how to do it through example after example, every single day we read clips in class, but that they have to understand that I'm asking them to learn to read in a new way. It's not what their habits will lead them to do. And so it's important that they understand that I'm, I'm getting them to do something different, first of all. And also that all of us, all of them, and I say this is also true of me, even though I'm way older than you are, but we're at a place in our culture now where everyone skims.
0: Mm, mm.
2: And skimming is the opposite of literary reading. It's the opposite. So if you're going to skim in my class, you're not going to grasp what what I'm teaching. Um, In in literary studies, we have a term for this type of attentive reading that we're talking about, and it's called close reading. I don't know if you know that term, Anthony. or But so the class is teaching you close reading and close reading is roughly synonymous with what I mean by literary reading that is closely attending to how the work of literature is constructed and i have to also focus with them and over time they grasp it through the examples it starts that it starts to dawn on them what this is all about that we can't skim or we'll miss everything it's not skimming and also that it is not reading for plot
0: mm. that
2: that most readers in my experience read for plot and i i say that makes complete sense it and i talk to them a lot about the, the cognitive science about reading and, um, you know, you have to read for plot the first time you read something because your brain is trying to grasp basically what's going on. Who are the people? Who are the characters and what's happening in the plot?
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: that's fine. However, that's not how we understand a literary text. And so to do close reading or literary reading, it is also absolutely essential that you reread. You can't grasp it all hmm. just by reading once. Hmm. Um, That's true of how literature works. It's also true of how the brain works when it reads. So um, that's one reason why I always require that students in my class have watched all eight seasons of Game of Thrones at least once before Mm. they start my class. They have to be doing it for the second time or they won't grasp things. Um, And I could give you some good examples of, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Tell
1: me about tell me about maybe uh, an episode or a scene or a theme or something. Yeah, sure. That your students usually get the second time around, but maybe miss the first time around.
2: Okay, so one great example of that, I think, and this is one I often use in class because it's immediately obvious to them. They're all watching it for at least the second time. And um, when we watch the episode where uh, Bran has already been pushed out the window yeah, and Cersei is going to come to, to offer Kat her sympathy. Yeah. And she tells the story of her first baby who died. Yeah. I say to the students, uh, I want you to pay attention to what Cersei tells you about the, the baby who has died. And one of the things that Cersei mentions is that the baby was, a beautiful black haired little thing uh, yeah right see all right mm-hmm. yeah so there it is the second i say why does it matter that the baby has black hair mm-hmm. now the second time they all get it yeah right so so that's a very clear example i say to them and think about this for a minute it is absolutely 100 the case it is impossible the first time you watch the show to realize why that's meaningful yeah. the hair color yeah so that just is a very practical example of the fact that there's all kinds of breadcrumbs the literary writer is leaving Mm -hmm. that you will only catch when you reread. Right. So that's That's a good starter example, yeah.
1: Yeah, crucial to that first season, the world that has been constructed, whether or not this works out genetically or whatnot, um, the world that's being constructed by the narrative is that the hair color of Robert's children have to be black and the fact that none of Cersei's children have black hair Mm -hmm. tells us something important about that relationship yeah and of course you absolutely don't know that episode too right there's no way to know that episode exactly right right? yeah
2: yeah so it's you know you're that's going to be that's a good example as we're setting the class up and the importance of Uh rereading that it's it also seems like a minor detail at that point first of all it's like well why would hair color be important but second of all that's a minor detail that's not the kind of thing i need to notice and you know eventually by looking at enough examples of things like that Mm -hmm. students start to really grasp what it means to pay attention to things that are not plot
1: sure right like i
2: said a minute ago people tend to focus on plot and and if you ask students to talk about you know what's important in a literary text. They'll often just summarize the plot for you. Right. But I'm saying to them, no, we're getting to a different kind of analytical level where you realize what a work of literature is made of. And the plot is just one element. It's things like um, details like the black hair that you know that's gonna become an exceedingly important uh, point in the show later.
1: Right, interesting. That seems interesting to me because it is a show only scene. It's, it does not have an analog in the actual novel. It's one of those things that the showrunners absolutely got from their close reading of the text mm. and made a decision, made a conscious decision that we need a, gr- a breadcrumb. Huh, you know? Okay. It's always interesting to me to see where stories end up getting adapted. Like, for instance, that particular scene is quite important for establishing a number of baselines of a few relationships there. But it, it's always kind of interesting to me, like, okay, the the storyteller here knows that they are adapting a previous story.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: sometimes it tells you something crucial to see where they've decided to change the story that's that's always kind of fascinating to me as well I th-
2: yes I think that is really fascinating and as you know Anthony we've discussed this that I've made a decision that I'm not going to read any of the books until I'm no longer teaching the class oh interesting <laughs> because um, I don't want to start mixing up the, the, sure. two, uh, the two in any way yeah. and so I always tell my students that at the beginning but I'm very interested to hear my students will say Sometimes say, well, you know, in the Uh books, this is how it goes. So, Uh so you have a much fuller understanding than I do about what is new.
1: Well, I think it's, I think that's fantastic because for me, it's always weird to reread the the book Mm -hmm. and encounter something that doesn't seem to work and think, why am I being? Is, is, oh, is my I... memory contaminating my my reading here? And of course, that's not the way to think about it. It's not contamination. It's sort of mutually informative. But I do have certain characters in my mind and certain character motivations in my mind that I've gotten from the show yeah. that I'm not actually getting from the page. And I have that's, to kind yeah. of ask myself why do I think that I, mm. I you know and that that's an interesting process for me mm-hmm. so a- anyway hey once you're done teaching this class
0: yeah
1: let's get together it'd be really fun to uh to talk through your first reading of the, sh- of the oh, book. oh for
2: sure yeah absolutely yeah always always happy to talk about the class too I, uh-huh. I just and an- I mean another thing I'll share I, I also say this to my students I'm, I'm teaching the class again this fall and as I said I started teaching it in uh 2019 I have now watched um, all eight seasons uh, about ten times.
1: Oh my! Oh my!
2: <laughs> and and I say to my students, and this is one hundred percent true. Every single time I watch it, I learn new things. Uh huh. It's every single time. I and you know this is what this is what great literature does. I mean, my favorite book of all time is Moby Dick. Uh-huh. I've read Moby Dick maybe thirty-five times. And still, every time I read it, I, and it's not like I notice one new thing. I notice a lot of new things. I mean, this is one of the great pleasures of, of, um, learning to read literature, you know, the, the, the layers, the levels, the depth, Mm -hmm. especially shows that, um, or works that um, are so tied to, um, so many complex topics, which is also true of, uh, Game of Thrones. So, you know, I'm jazzed. I, uh, I'm going to be, of course, House of the Dragons is going to be dropping uh, right around the time I'm going to be rewatching all eight seasons of, um, of mm. Game of Thrones. <laughs> so yeah. that's a lot of watching to do, but um, I know I'll learn new things again this time. Sure. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, maybe I'll share. Would it be interesting? I'll share something that only occurred to me the last time I taught the class. Last I would four. love it. Yeah. All right, and I said to my students when I when I noticed this, I said, I want you to know that I this I only figured this out like this time because I also don't want them to think like that for some reason I'm the expert and I already hold all the cards and I know everything and that I'm just going to sort of deliver it to them in class. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not the point at all. The point is that once you learn the method, uh, just a whole new world opens up. And so I love students discover things every semester that I've never thought of before. And that's always really fun. Um, but you know, another thing I say to them is it's really important in literary works whenever something doesn't seem to make sense it bothers you something mm-hmm. seems wrong you got to remember those things because if it is a well crafted work I mean there are things you know writers sometimes just make mistakes or they don't handle something in the most elegant way um uh, uh shout out there to some things about season eight but um uh, you know if it's a well crafted work which mm-hmm. Game of Thrones is Mm-hmm. The things that don't seem to make sense do make sense once you learn to read them with literary reading. So first of all, this is going to go to our conversation a little bit later, Anthony, but this is how I started breaking down the whole, what are little fingers true motivations, yeah. uh, you know, issue that I've gotten very interested in. But the last time I was teaching, um, teaching the show, I've always told students to pay attention to the titles of episodes because the titles of episodes are very carefully chosen. And most of them are phrases that are said by a character at some point in the episode. Okay. So in their homework question, I always say who says today's episode title and the episode title often is, has a literary meaning in the sense that it's got several layers. A great example of this would be the episode title garden of bones. Mm -hmm. The term garden of bones. um, First of all, it's, Uh, On on its surface, it's a literary use of words because there's no such thing as a garden of bones. It's not a literal thing. It doesn't exist. Right? What's a garden of bones? What would a garden of bones be? So we work with the words, like what is a garden? What are bones? How would these two words go together? Now, to ask that question is another way of saying this is a metaphor. It's not a literal thing. It's a metaphorical thing. Um, so if you look at the episode, the idea of Garden of Bones is basically running across the episode in a bunch of different ways. One of the first ways it comes up in the episode is you see the battlefield, uh, where Rob Stark is going to meet Talisa and she's going to be amputating somebody's uh, foot. Right. Right. And that's a Garden of Bones. I mean, it's the land, you know, laid out before them, but full of corpses. Right. but the idea again it once you start saying to yourself this isn't just plot like i'm watching for how the words create layers of meaning you can see that the idea of garden of bones comes back again and again and again and uh, probably the final way in the in the entire series the garden of bones comes up is when all those corpses come back to life at uh, winterfell um it you know so so it's just a rich kind of use of literary language and yeah. um so I get them to pay attention to the episode titles so you know we had been doing that uh together every day and then I realized we got to the Baylor episode mm-hmm. and I was and I was troubled I thought to myself why is this the title like I know why is important it's <laughs> yeah. where Arya is taking sure. cover yeah. right but why is it important? And then I really started thinking about it. And I sort of, I held myself to my own expectations for my students. And I said, no, these don't just work at the level of plot. There's something else going on. Uh-huh. And I started thinking about it. And then, man, wow, it occurred to me what was going on. And I got so excited. And um, I started diving into the word Baylor. and okay my students and I every day, and and you'll love this too, as a fellow teacher, my students end up commenting on evaluations that they love. I mean, it's that enthusiastic. They love the fact that I have taught them to use the Oxford English Dictionary, (laughs) um, which is a marvelous dictionary. And it traces, uh, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with it, it traces the uses of English words back Mm. to their very earliest um, recorded instance. So, you know, you look up a word and you just see this rich word history and students love using uh, the OED for class. It's like a real anchor for understanding things that you can say with very concrete evidence about what words mean in a literary text. So Baylor, I'm looking at the word, right? It's spelled B-A-E-L-O-R. And I'm listening to the word in my head and I'm like, that's got the word bail in it. B-A-L-E, the sound of the word bail. Bailor. Yeah. And bail means evil. Uh, I happen to have the OED definition right here next to me. I brought it today for show and tell. The definition of bail. So, Baylor. Okay, now Baylor. No, Baylor. The statue of Baylor. That's he's not evil. That's Baylor the blessed, right? Right. And remember, in that scene, Ned's going to have his head cut off. There's Picel Now, this goes back to reading the screen, which you said earlier, Anthony. If you watch that scene. Uh, Pysel is over at the right hand side of the screen and he's blabbing on as he is wont to do about Baylor the Blessed and the God. So the gods are just, but they're also merciful. One of his usual, you know, endless speeches. But Baal, Baalish.
1: Oh, nice.
2: Yeah. See? Nice. I'm glad you had that reaction. When I saw that, I was like, oh man, this is Baalish and Baylor. And then, and then I said to myself, okay, so what's that? So first of all, as I'm walking through this with my students, I want to say to them, I want you to watch the process I went through. All I did was notice a word. I knew the word was important. It's the episode title, but I had to go through this kind of detective process to figure out what it means. And I have more to explain about that, but, but it's important to say I had to do the thinking. If I just said, Oh, the episode's called Baylor because there's a statue of Baylor and that's where Arya is, that's plot. Hmm. But literary reading is not plot. That's not how literary artists build things. All right, so let's go back to Baylor. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Baylor and Baylish. And then I thought, okay, remember that scene where sells over on the right and he's blabbing about Baylor the Blessed? That's yeah. like the good, that's like the good Baylor.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But at the left side of the screen is is Baelish, and Baelish hmm. is standing there impassive. Everyone else is flipping out. You remember that scene? No one knows Joffrey's going to cut Ned's head off. Total
1: chaos. Right? Exactly.
2: But go back. This is what we did in class. We went back and rewatched the scene. The only person who's not flipping out is Baelish, <laughs> and he and he's. That something that happens across the entire series, right Mm -hmm. up to the scene when he dies, which we can talk about if you'd like. I went back and rewatched it before we met today. Mm -hmm. Baelish is constantly shot at the edge of very important scenes, right at the edge of the frame. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing my, you know, my students and I track these kinds of things. And so there he is at the edge so you have bail, bail uh, So bailish is the is the sense of bail as active evil
0: that hmm. you see in the OED.
2: Okay. Okay. okay, but get this. This is fantastic. Remember, I said the OED traces the whole word history of every word in English, going back to its yeah. first recorded instance. All right, the word bail it comes from Middle English poetry, medieval poetry, where it is specifically used bail in opposition to the word bliss. Hmm. Tell me what you're thinking.
1: Well, my my sense is okay, so I'm I'm gonna use a little bit of my again, I will contaminate this with my own memory. <laughs> Please do. So I'm thinking about Baylor as this figure in Celtic mythology mm. who is something of a chaos monster.
2: Oh, I didn't know
1: that. And analogous in some way to early, 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 analogous in some way to Cyclops and later, uh, yeah. later mythologies. Yeah. So for me, I'm thinking, what is the opposite of bliss? It's chaos. That's okay. just what flashed right. in my mind
2: interesting yeah no i didn't know uh i didn't know that um that baylor was a celtic figure is that mm. is did i get you right a celtic
1: figure? yeah yeah it's it's spelled differently uh b um, a l o r b a l o r okay but close enough
2: yeah yeah okay
1: anyway yeah,
2: yeah so in this the, the, this particular um juxtaposition from um poetry from old english downwards as the oed puts it is saying that it's a word that almost exclusively appears in poems and always to talk about this opposition between bale or what's evil and then bliss or relief from evil
0: Hmm. Hmm. so
2: in this particular scene again with the you know little finger on one side baelish and then Picel on the other side saying you know Baylor the blessed would want us to have mercy yeah uh, I think we have that opposition going in the scene that, that is hinged on that idea.
1: Oh, of, nice.
2: Of, yeah, you see what I mean? Like, bless yes. is a little bit like, this is something a literary artist would like. Like, the word bless is a little bit like bliss, blessed, right. is, is, you see? So right. this is that's a good example of, like, a literary reading of a word that has nothing to do with the plot.
1: Right. That's that's really interesting. I would have never connected Baylor to Baylish before, but clearly yeah. the way that the story is being told, this is the same thing, same way in in the show and the book. That chapter in the book is told from Arya's perspective. Is it? And Arya, of course, is stationed right there by that statue. Yeah. And I think that on the surface, we are th- supposed to think about Baylor as this kind very pious figure in we- Westerosi lore. Mm-hmm. But if you're familiar with Western literature or etymology or something along those lines, you can go a number of directions. If you were if you're familiar with sort of Semitic history, mm. Baal is the word for lord mm. or master. Really? And usually always set in, in opposition to sort of the Jewish storytellers of that period. Mm. Interesting. So I mean, you could go a number of directions, but it requires some kind of knowledge of how words work, and maybe a few historic, maybe a few stories. And the one thing that just really resonates is that that sort of that root word "bail." is mm-hmm. the same with Baylor and Baelish.
2: Yes, I agree. And yeah. it
1: feels like there's no way that's a coincidence.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a it's a sound repetition. I mean, mm-hmm. even if the spellings differ, it's a sound repetition. And um, this is the, this is a good example again of a, a kind of a literary technique. Hmm. Um, and to get to get students to realize that these are some of the kinds of things that artists do deliberately. And um, to give them examples where they're showing up in the show, again, over time, the the practice with the literary techniques, they start picking up stuff on their own that's just great. Right, right,
0: right. Um,
2: and, and to, you know, as we move through it, as we move through the class, each day I usually give them one or two um, sort of technical terms for literary devices. We start with the ones that are uh, much easier to grasp and we add to them over the over the semester and then we're applying them. And, you know, so by the end of the semester, they've got a whole vocabulary. And as I'm always saying, like glossaries are not supposed to be like, um, you know, just dreadful homework. I mean, they exist because they show you things that Hmm. artists do. That's why they exist. Like the terms are invented because people are trying to explain things about how literature works and they want a term for it so that they can refer to these things Um, so you know for example the very first thing i get students practicing to start building their close reading skills because i know they'll know instantly what i mean is to track patterns and i'll just say patterns could be um, words that keep cropping up again and again mm-hmm. across an episode or across the show. They could be certain kinds of things a particular character tends to do, you know, anything that strikes you as a pattern, start noticing it. And, and then eventually I'll say, you know, there is a literary term for a pattern like that. We call it a motif. And eventually we start calling it motifs. Mm-hmm. But um, the very first three things that I'm teaching them, the basics of literary reading or close reading are tracking patterns. and and saying you do not you should not at this point be tell be putting pressure on yourself to say what the pattern means you right. don't have enough evidence yet
1: yeah just observing at this point
2: yeah you, you got they they have to feel freed not to have to say you know something that many of them tell me they're trained to do in high school is like instantly say what something symbolizes mm-hmm. and i said no, no 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 you don't know that yet you just now you're you're collecting data so track the patterns be aware that words that come up in important places or that are repeated often are ones that literary writers are using because they have multiple layers, like bail, bail, mm-hmm. bailish. So, notice key words. We're going to look them up in the OED. And then the, the other thing is the rereading principle. Those are the three first ones we start with. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Okay. So, I do want to talk a little bit about. <sighs> All right, so let me just frame it this way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This brings us to an interesting point in the book, because my usual week-to-week podcast, we've just gotten to the point in the story where Baelish holds a knife to Ned's throat. Ah, yes. And says, I told you not to trust me. Yeah. And in my mind, and I'm not settled on this, mm-hmm. but because the book is constructed in such an odd way, For me, I'm reading that as the climax of the first novel. Uh, In the show, clearly the climax of Ned being beheaded. (laughs) Yeah. But in the the book, this kind of happens. You know, Arya's eyes get closed. She doesn't actually see it happen. It's -hmm. really hard to locate where that is. And so I'm thinking, this is a curious choice. I think that when Baelish reveals... To Ned, that he is in cahoots with Cersei and whoever, mm-hmm. to me, that reveals so much of what's happened in the story so far. And I, I really was thinking it would be fun to talk about Baelish's motivations because they drive so much of the plot in this in this first book. Yes, he stands okay. behind so much uh, of mm-hmm. what happens to Ned and what happens to Bran and what ha- is mm-hmm. happening to Kat. And okay. so I thought we could talk a little bit about, you know, maybe h- who Baelish is for this story and what motivates him.
2: Yeah, great. And and uh, am I am I hearing correctly, Anthony, that you're saying that what I see in the show in this respect is, is similar to what's in the books?
1: Yes, very much okay. so. Oh, it very is. OK. So.
2: Yeah. All right. Okay, so um yeah, this this goes back to something I said earlier where I teach students to pay attention to what doesn't make sense. Yeah. And this was how I got started with uh with really paying very close attention to Littlefinger because when I finished the show the first time, the idea that Littlefinger was in love with Catelyn Stark made absolutely no sense to me. Okay. I, I knew that it was a story that was repeated across Mm -hmm. the entire series. I knew that many seemingly authoritative people had repeated it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tyrion says it, Varys says it, Littlefinger says it, Kat says it, Ned says it. Um, Everyone's telling me. And I didn't believe it. I saw no indication that Littlefinger loved Catelyn Stark. And so I just was perplexed by that. And... um, coming back to what i said earlier i mean we do have examples of things that are written or tv shows that are produced that just aren't very good hmm. there are a lot of them but i knew already that that game of thrones was a very literary show going back to what i said earlier and i know these are all ext- you know very skilled writers so so that was a clue to me that there was something i hadn't grasped in the close reading and the next time I watched the series, I really watched closely for that. Hmm. And I was able to put together enough concrete evidence that I am confident. First of all, that Littlefinger does not love Catelyn Stark, which is not oh? to say he didn't when he was a boy. But in the show, he does not love her. His motivation is not love, it's revenge. Hmm. And also, the other thing that became, in some ways, even more interesting to me was that the show was written so that no one ever says that. <laughs> you know, you you in a lesser work of literature, someone sure. would make a speech.
1: Right, right.
2: You get what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. It, you know, it, it, in a lesser work of literature, someone would have explained that at the end. Instead, what they did, and and you know, great works of literature often do this. There's enough. Uh, there are enough breadcrumbs there for you to put the case together, but you have to pay attention and you have to recognize there's something about the surface story that is not adding up. Okay. So, so, you know, it, 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 it makes, and once I lay this on the table for my students and say, you have to watch for the evidence, it is there. But again, you have to use your close reading to find it. That can become really fun.
1: So tell, tell me about your process here. What, what, what is your way into this? What was it a what scene or what what got you thinking, aha, I get it. He's not in love with her at all. He's in it for revenge.
2: He's in it for revenge. Okay, so, you know, at this point um as as I'm training my students to do, I I'm just paying attention to things that seem like minor details. Okay. They're not plot elements. Or they're, they're throwaway remarks and so on. And there were a lot of them once you start tracking it. So how about if I give you a couple of examples? Beautiful. Um, okay. So one would be, okay, after Renly is killed, Yeah. Loras is grieving over Renly's body and Littlefinger walks in. And Littlefinger says to Loras, um, what do you desire most in this world? And Loras says, revenge. Mm-hmm. And Littlefinger says, I myself have always found that to be the purest of motivations.
1: (laughs) That's such a great Game of Thrones line. (laughs) Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, goodness, yes.
2: But it goes back to what I was saying before about how he's often shot at the very edge of a frame. Mm -hmm. And you see, that scene's about Loras grieving. But littlefinger's telling you something very important about himself
1: interesting
2: that, about his own motivations i myself have always found that to be the purest of motivations uh-huh. there's another scene like that when um littlefinger and Varys are in the throne room and i i get my students to as they're tracking patterns notice things like their various characters uh, I call them character pairs when you have two characters who often meet at different points across the series and talk about something. Okay. So, in that sense, Littlefinger and Varys are a character pair. Absolutely, we, uh, they are. Right? Absolutely. You get what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they're meeting in the throne room. They reveal um,
1: something about each other because they reflect. Ne- neither character can reflect the other. Let me let me put it in the pro- in the positive. These characters reflect the personality of the other in ways that other characters cannot.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so Good. when
1: they, when they meet, it's like, Ooh, I, I think I'm going to get a little window into both of these guys that I, that I don't see, uh, you know, in other, in other conversations.
2: Yes. That's, that's, a, that's well put. And immediately you're making me think of a, a character pair meeting between, um, Jamie and Ned Stark. Uh,
0: okay. uh, that's another another
2: character pair. I mean, we yeah. see them over and over. You see what I yeah. mean, right? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, so anyway, uh Littlefinger's staring at the Iron Throne, and Varys walks in. And um Varys asks, you know, how do you picture yourself up there? Does the crown fit? And so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um Littlefinger says, um, uh, Varys says something like, uh, are you looking down on all the lords and ladies who sneered at you for all these years and little finger says it will be hard for them to sneer at me without heads oh goodness so you know again there's these there are these breadcrumbs constantly about little fingers desire for revenge mm-hmm. and of course the key scene so in addition to these these sort of constant sort of throwaway lines the key scene is remember the scene when Roz and Aremka are uh, having sex in the brothel. He's orchestrating them to have sex. Mm-hmm. And they're on one side of the room. It's another one of these great shots. They're on one side of the room having sex, and he's standing on the other side of the room, and he's talking about Catelyn Stark and about when uh, Brandon Stark, you know, cut him from navel to collarbone. He, that's hmm. where... It, do you think of that, that scene, Anthony, as his origin story?
1: I do, and I think from Kat's perspective, it is for sure. In the and I think of it in terms of here is a character who was never going to be elite enough, socially elite enough, or wealthy enough to marry someone like Kat, uh-huh. and and knowing that, and knowing that he can't fall back on his his sort of military prowess either because he tries, you know Ned's older brother in battle and fails. Uh-huh. He's always sort of the I guess in gender studies we would call this the subordinate masculinity.
0: Okay, yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. and knowing that,
1: just mm-hmm. just being galled by his predicament yes. that he resolves he's going to accumulate power and more power and more power until he doesn't ever have to be in that position again. Mm-hmm. That's what I view as his origin story. And yet again, all we ever have of these things are people's memories, the, the characters' memories of these events. And almost every character in the book is an unreliable narrator. So, yeah. so it, it's it's I always caution myself a little bit to think, okay, yeah, but that's that's what cat says and of course Littlefinger loves to lie to everyone. So yes. I can't really <laughs> take what he says as truth. Mm-hmm. But but it that's sort of a long answer to your question. Yeah, I do I do view that as his origin story.
2: Okay, yeah. So I, I I see that scene also as his origin story. And as you're saying, at the very least we can say he's telling the story from his own point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a couple of important things that happen as he's telling this story. First of all, the visuals themselves are focused on the fact, and I, I checked with you in advance about uh, mature language is okay on yeah. this podcast. Yeah, but yeah. we have we have two kinds of fucking going on in this scene. Okay, so he's orchestrating the whores, right? Um, fucking, but this is the scene where he says very importantly that one of the things he has learned is that he can't play the game by their rules. And he says, I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to fuck.
1: Ah, ah, yes. Now,
2: this is one of the best homework days for my students because they have to go to the OED and look up fuck.
1: Oh, good. Now now you're going to teach me something new. I don't know about
2: that. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, it's in the OED and it's an old word and Uh it's on the quiz. They love that. You know, they said I never was assigned to look up the word fuck in the OED in my entire (laughs) life as a student. But, but, you know, what you get is you get a, a primary definition, which is to have sexual intercourse.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But the
2: second definition is to harm, to deceive, to betray.
1: Uh huh. Okay.
2: So to say this is very interesting in so many ways, and it's another great opportunity for close reading that has to go beyond plot because you say, all right. So look what's happening in this scene. We've got two kinds of fucking. First of all, mm-hmm. um, we want to notice that this is a good a place to to say in class. I mean when does little finger have sex in the entire yeah
1: never <laughs> well
2: there's we, there's one time we know he's having sex
1: oh really i didn't know this i i, with, I forgot with, about this
2: with liza aaron
1: oh that's right and sansa Remember? hears it from yeah, the yeah she
2: hears it yes and then uh, and then i say does he have sex with liza aaron because he finds her very desirable is it because he loves her um and they, everyone's like no it's tactical the answer is power, yeah right?
1: of course yeah
2: okay so little finger we see him on a number of scenes in the brothel in the scene we're talking about his origin scene Roz invites him to come and have sex she says why don't you join us my lord little finger never has sex for pleasure
1: right right
2: um, so this is one way of saying that Littlefinger's model of fucking is that second sense in the uh-huh. OED. It's harm, uh-huh. betrayal, deceit. And and so, you know, he says, I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to fuck them. Now, this is another very key issue in Game of Thrones. It recurs in the scene of Littlefinger's death, incidentally. When he says them, who does he mean? I'm going to fuck them who does he mean? And by this point in my class, we've talked about a very key literary term, which is ambiguity. And um, we make the point that when I say literary ambiguity, I don't mean unintentional ambiguity, like you're talking to your friend and you're, you know, they don't understand what you meant because you weren't clear enough. Literary ambiguity is very deliberate ambiguity and it's ambiguity that does exactly this kind of opening up of layers of meaning and Game of Thrones is loaded with literary ambiguity. The very first sentence in the entire series is ambiguous in a way that means a whole heck of a lot. Um,
1: Which is what? I forget.
2: This is when Waymar Royce is going north with um, with two other guys. Yeah. And, yeah, they find the butchery, right? But the very first line in the show is, they're savages.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: <laughs> they, right. right? Sure, sure. So, I mean, you know, and, and that's a key to not only a lot of what happens in the whole show with the idea of savage, savages versus civilized people. Right. Uh, right up to the, the last scene of, uh, of season eight, but also their savages, the first line of season one, episode one, is the key to the last scene of season one, episode one. Because Waymore Royce says they're savages. And I say to my students, so that's literary ambiguity, there. Yeah. Who's he talking about? And they say, Well, he's talking about the wildlings. And I say, Yeah, in the story, in the plot, he means the wildlings. But the literary writers gave us an ambiguous pronoun for a reason. Because they're opening up a deeper layer in the show. And so in that first scene, I'm sure you'll recall, when they are having this argument about who who exactly were the butchers, um uh, the Night's Watchman says, uh, I've never seen wildlings do a thing like this. They even killed the children. Right. So we get to the end of season one, episode one, and I say, so um, if the definition of savages is people who kill children, who kills children in season one, episode
1: one? <laughs> sure, yeah, of
2: Last scene, right?
1: Uh-huh, yeah.
2: So, um, so by, by the time we hit this scene with Littlefinger, I'm going to fuck them. My students have already learned what literary ambiguity is. And so then we ask the question. I say, I'm not asking you because I think you should have an instant answer. But let's think about it. We have to do the thinking. Like, he says them. I'm going to fuck them. Who's them? So the idea that he's going to fuck somebody, we know from the OED, means harm, betrayal, deceit. This is uh, Littlefinger's revenge motive that we've, we've heard in so many other places. And then you say, well, who's them? and one candidate for them of course is uh catlin and the starks because he has just told that story about the duel right um and he lost the fight against brandon stark so he can't fight that way what he can do instead is he can fuck. sure so this is yeah this is one way of saying what is he actually doing In all the scenes with Kat that we keep seeing, I have tons of examples I'd be happy to share, where students come in again, as I did that first time, like, okay, everybody told me, Tyrion, Barris, Ned, Kat, Littlefinger, everyone told me he loves her. But when I watch these scenes, it makes no sense. Yeah. (laughs) But you realize once you bring in this new understanding of Uh Littlefinger's motive, it unlocks these other scenes. Almost every scene between Cat and Littlefinger, when you watch it, look at his face. Watch his face when he gives Catelyn Ned Stark's mangled body in a box.
1: Right, right. And
2: calls it a gift.
1: Well, even as you're talking, I'm thinking about another way to think of that word, because Throughout this first novel, Littlefinger is always fucking with Ned. Like yeah, in a, in yeah. a, in a sort of the the modern colloquial sense, yes, he's exactly. messing with him. He's yes. poking exactly. him. He's like, yes. "I know that if I say this, you will feel uncomfortable."
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: so he's right. constantly insulting Ned, you know, going right up to the line with Ned. Mm -hmm. and so yes of course that's what he's doing and of course you know he's a that that's sort of who he is that's who his character is who is he he's the kind of guy that will deceptively fuck you right yes
2: exactly yeah
1: key to his character
2: yes and as you're saying i mean that's another great example oh we talked about his constant meetings with Varys, but whenever he meets up with ned you see him Mm -hmm. again fucking rather than fighting right and you know, this is not you remember, I when I was talking about the Baylor and the fact that uh, you see little finger at the over on the left hand side of the screen when Ned is going to be executed, yeah. I want to talk about that scene for a minute, if I may, with please, respect to yeah, we're right but,
1: there in the book. I appreciate okay, it. Okay,
2: good. We're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna pit this scene, that scene in Baylor, against the very first scene when Ned and little finger meet for the first time, okay. So in the latter scene, I'll start with that one because we talked about it already. What you're seeing is the camera is behind Ned as Ned is walking up to be sentenced. And as Ned approaches that, I don't know what they're standing on, today you'd call it a dais. I don't know what you'd call sure. it
0: yeah. They're in an
2: elevated position. But as Ned is walking up to it, Littlefinger is over on the left-hand side, the edge of the frame, and Littlefinger is the first person Ned is walking toward, okay? now. Let's zoom earlier to the episode when Littlefinger and Ned meet for the first time. It's when Ned arrives in King's Landing. Ned um, walks into the small council meeting. Littlefinger is at the, again, the left-hand side edge of the frame, just like he is in Baylor, same spot. Ned, again, enters the room. We see him from behind, just like in the. There's a lot of these kind of visual repetitions, patterns in the show. Ned walks in in the same way. There's Littlefinger. Ned does not acknowledge him at all. And he greets uh, Varys, comes forward to greet Ned, and then Ned greets Renly. Littlefinger is being neglected. He's just hanging there at the left, left side of the screen. Mm-hmm. And then he introduces himself. And um, so this is their first meeting. But when you see those scenes next to each other and you see what Littlefinger has managed to do with fucking Ned, we want to remember that in the first scene, this is where this is another chance for Littlefinger to tell his origin story. Because he says, I'm sure your wife, Catelyn, has told you about me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And Ned says, yeah. And I believe you knew my brother, Brandon. And Littlefinger says, yes. So he relives the duel again. He says he left his, a token of his esteem from navel to collarbone. Mm-hmm. So the way I, I think the, the way the literary reading pans out here is in the first scene, what we basically have, we have Ned walking in, he meets Littlefinger. They both reminisce about Brandon and Littlefinger's defeat. I like to call this with my students. It's the beginning of duel
1: 2.0. Okay.
2: But this duel is not going to be fighting. It's going to be fucking. Yeah. So in that sense, it ties back to the scene in the brothel, one little finger.
1: That first scene, Ned is a little, not common, not commonly so, but, you know, Ned's not commonly, like, uh, the the sort of person to, it's sort of ironic that I say put it this way, but he's not the kind of person to lord it over you. Mm. Mm -hmm. But in that that first scene... (laughs) Yeah. yeah, good
2: use of that word. It In that first that scene <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: the, the first thing that you mentioned, Ned's a little bit haughty.
2: Yes, I agree. He's I agree. a little
1: bit like, yeah, how did that work out for you, Littlefinger? Yes. He's he's saying yes. it with his eyes and the the tone of his voice. Yep. I like, agree. let's not forget what happened to you. Don't yeah. fuck with the Starks. We're gonna yes. this is what we're gonna do. And of course, you know, Littlefinger's playing the long game here. Um, But but it's interesting that Ned does reveal a little bit of that dark side of himself in that conversation. You don't see it very often.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you about that. And in fact, you know, this is a scene I continue to ponder. Um, It's another one of those scenes where this went on my list of things I don't understand. And so i kept going back to it mm-hmm. it's, it's immediately before he meets littlefinger when he sees jamie in in the throne room and jamie tells the story of of killing um Aris targaryen after he has burned uh, ned's father and brother to death and i don't know if you can picture that scene in your in your mind um i rewatched it again before our talk today but I think what what you're just saying about Ned, you know, in quotes, we both like this phrase, lording it over little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has just done the same thing to Jamie before he walks into the small council meeting. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
2: Now, at that point, Jamie has no fan sympathy. Right. Right? He has none. But again, from a literary standpoint, it's so important that... Um, to create complexity and not just flatten characters into pure heroes and pure villains, mm-hmm. because that's very predictable and it's boring and it's not human either. But when he meets Jamie and they share that story, that is a scene, it's the only scene I can think of in the, in the early part of the show before Jamie undergoes his transformation, when actually he is sympathetic in my reading. I think he is sympathetic. Hmm. He, he talks about watching them burn and how they didn't deserve it, and, and he says, you know, and, and when I killed Aerys Targaryen, and you look at the face acting, I mean, the face acting on Nikolai coster waldau hmm. is outstanding, and he says to Ned, it felt like justice, and he has a very vulnerable look on his face, hmm. and Ned basically swats him. He says, is that what you tell yourself before you play right. you know, when you think about... Right. But that's some, there's something wrong in that scene, Anthony. You see
1: what I mean? Absolutely. And, I mean, we haven't talked a lot about Jamie here, but he's he's a perfect example of the kind of character who, in that moment, and, he, you know, rewinding, rewinding to sort of that prehistory of Game of Thrones, this is a teenager. Mm-hmm. And he's taken these vows and so he's got these these conflicting taboos like you don't kill your king that's antithetical to your vocation and you're you're antithetical to your humanity and at the same time you know a knight is sh- should be about justice and so when he calls out justice here's a guy that almost doesn't believe in justice anymore You know, because of course that's it's it's foolish. It's foolish Mm. to be a to be a a man of justice in a world where justice can't exist,
0: Mm, and
1: and trying to explain that sort of deep sea. We talk about people's origin stories, trying to sort of reveal that to Ned, and then just to be swatted down like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, just
1: goes more and more to Jamie's formation. It's like, yes, of course, someone like Ned is not going to understand you he believes the lie that justice is real and you know better, you know better that this guy's a fool for believing it. Mm -hmm. So I I just think that's a wonderful scene.
2: Yeah. And and now that, you know, you were, you were pointing out what you did about um, characterizing Ned's attitude toward Littlefinger. It's Mm -hmm. interesting that you see him do that in back-to-back scenes with two different (laughs) characters. And, And one of the reasons I think it's really important to point that out, it goes back to again, literary methods and the importance that characters are rich and what we call round characters rather than flat characters um again up until season eight game of thrones is doing an outstanding job with characterization Mm. with developing characters and in my view that's what goes wrong mostly with season eight but what's interesting to me about that those scenes we just discussed and this could go back to the issue of notice what doesn't seem right because it's something you need to think about more
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know ned's a fan favorite as you know um but to see as as you pointed out ned's i think you said something like ned's dark side comes out a little bit yeah yeah and he's just done the same thing with jamie right you know to, and and that pushes against our instincts to merely think of ned as a good guy or a man of honor whose judgment we're not supposed to question, but we are supposed to question. <laughs> well, and, on
1: first, I think on first, I'll let you, I'm sorry to interrupt. No,
2: no, that's fine. Um,
1: I think on first watch, because that's that's early, early. That may mm-hmm. be second second scene, or second uh, episode or third episode, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we've, we're almost being tricked at that point because Jamie is absolutely coded as villainous, right? Yes,
0: right.
1: And Littlefinger just kind of has that, that smell on him. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> and of course, at that point, of course, Ned is a fan favorite. Now, in my experience, in retrospect, I feel like Ned is universally sort of loathed by the fandom.
2: Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's okay.
1: foolish. Okay. And, you know, you know, more
2: than I do about that.
1: Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a fool. And I, I read him a little bit differently, but okay. I think that on first watch, you're probably right. Ned is sort of coded as heroic. Mm -hmm.
0: You
1: know, he's the father's father knows best kind of guy. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas these other guys are being coded. But we know, you know, all we have to do is is watch a few more episodes and we realize that you can't think about heroes and villains in that way and really understand what's going on in this show.
2: Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, that ties back again to our thread today about little finger's origin story because we have to recognize i mean what you said is super important a super important connection to this that when little finger talks about his disastrous challenge to brandon stark he says he he challenged him to a duel because of the stories he had read mm. and that the little hero always beats the big villain in the stories
0: mm-hmm.
2: so this goes to the overarching uh, pattern across the series of the importance of storytellers and storytelling and I know you've discussed this in your podcast on, on other occasions as well this is a good place to return to that idea because what Littlefinger has read is a certain type of story that now I'm again I'm using a, a term we use in my class as a literary term and so I'll also provide a working definition those stories of the little hero who beats the big villain would in terms of genre be called romances. That's the term for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and the term romance, you know, again, go to our favorite book, The OED. It, it doesn't mean what we tend to mean today when we think of a romance as like a Valentine's Day card or a love story of some kind. Um, romance as a literary genre um, means, uh, originally meant stories that did not have to adhere to the rules of everyday life. Hmm. And they they usually featured heroes, villains, supernatural beings, adventures, quests. In other words, this was the medieval romance, like the story of King Arthur. Sure. So that's the kind of story Littlefinger has been reading. He's been reading romance. And the thing about romance, that the, the way the history of that word played out, is it went from being like the medieval romance, again, King Arthur, knights, maidens, dragons, uh, and so on, to, you know, wizards. Over time, romance as a literary genre simply came to mean fantasy. The fantasy genre is romance. And it's romance in the sense that it does not follow the rules of the actual world. Mm. So, the, the genre term that's the opposite of romance is the term realism. Realism is a type of literature that um, that tries to adhere to the rules of actuality, whatever they might be understood to be at that point in history. Of course, ideas of reality shift over time as well. Mm-hmm. But that's a major opposition in literary studies. Romance, a genre that is fantasy, that would be like Harry Potter, James Bond, Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm um versus realism so little finger is saying i started out reading romances and i believed them, and that's where the little hero always beats the big villain but he learned that the stories are wrong
1: right sure and
2: that's when he says i'm not gonna fight them i'm gonna fuck them so little finger is is working within the the real uh the real tactical world of the game of thrones yeah. in this story world that we have been given
1: And a nice here we have a nice parallel with Sansa, who is going to be learning this very lesson as the show unfolds.
2: Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, great, great, great uh, link there to Sansa, because she starts out as a character who really is emblematic of a romantic worldview, you know, I'm going to marry Prince Joffrey, uh, he's my perfect prince, and I'm going to have his beautiful golden Mm haired babies, and and her arc is from romance to realism, if we put it in those literary terms. Yes. And I was, you know, I was checking back today just before we had a chance to talk, and since I was thinking about the opening words of the whole series, then I said to myself, oh, what are the closing words of the whole series? And I went back to look, and the last words are Queen of the North.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Oh,
1: goodness gracious.
3: Madman and father of Mad Max, George Miller, is back with another apocalyptic tale from the Australian Wastelands. This time we're getting a prequel featuring the origin story of Charlize Theron's character Furiosa. Starring the Queen's Gambit's Anya Taylor-Joy in the title role, and the mighty Thor Chris Hemsworth as the warlord Dr. Dementus, Furiosa promises more high-octane, slightly radioactive action and fun. Furiosa drives into theaters on May 24th and we'll have our spoiler-free thoughts and impressions of the film as well as a discussion of trailers and upcoming movies for everyone. But if you want to ride with us the full length of the podcast on the eternal highways of Valhalla, shiny and chrome, you're going to have to be a club member. Join today at support.baldmove.com. Get our full discussion of Furiosa and many more first-run films plus tons of other bonus podcasts and ad-free feeds. Support.baldmove.com.
2: Um, do you want more examples of Littlefinger? Uh, Actually, vengeance? yeah,
1: I might. But let me okay. let me just do this one thing. I think right. if you don't mind another don't know, five or ten all. minutes. No, of
0: course. All
1: right. I'm going to push back a little bit on this. Sure. OK, just to see what happens, because I feel like I agree with probably 90 percent of your little fingers doesn't love cat. He wants revenge. Yeah. Let me let me phrase it this way. Is it possible for someone with sociopathic uh, or narcissistic or revenge tendencies Mm -hmm. to convince themselves that they actually do love someone in the way that Littlefinger proclaims that he loves Kat? Let
2: me say that back to you. Okay. And make sure that I grasped it. Um, Is what you're saying that, for something like roughly all the examples that um, I'm offering that seem to be vengeance are actually in the twisted mind of a sociopath, the definition of love,
1: or it's like I guess I'm on this this constant futile quest for a both and,
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. okay. and I and I'm almost thinking like. Yeah, he probably has convinced himself that he does love Mm Cat, but it's been so twisted in his mind Mm -hmm. that he's lost sight of what that might actually feel like. Or maybe he doesn't really experience love the way other people might experience love. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Not anything recognizable. So, for instance, let's say he's convinced himself that he loves Cat, but for him it looks like possessing Cat. Mm -hmm. and something that maybe he can never do, so he decides I'm going to possess her daughter instead. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to invent sort of a Catelyn 2.0 or something out of Sansa. Mm -hmm. And to anyone who feels like they have a handle on what emotions do and what they're supposed to look like, Mm -hmm. that doesn't look like love. Of course that looks ridiculous. It's, it's, It's monstrous, the way that looks. But inside the monster's head... What makes that person monstrous is that they actually believe their own lies. They actually believe that they are in love.
2: Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to push back on your pushback. Is that okay?
1: Oh, it's perfect.
2: All right, good. So uh, to push back on your pushback, I think I want to offer a few more examples. Okay, good. Uh, And these would be... These would be some of my evidence, and I want to say in my class, but my students and I constantly talk about evidence, which uh-huh. they end up finding extremely helpful. Um, they tell me that one of the things that they found frustrating often about um, literature classes they, they took in high school is that they're, they feel that they're kind of in very subjective territory, and they're never quite sure how to um, establish analytically the validity of their claims. hmm so we talk constantly about evidence. What would it mean to have evidence? Okay. So, I would I would say, and I definitely appreciate further pushback if you have it, Anthony. I would say that I think I have evidence that would show that no Littlefinger actually knows this is revenge. Okay. Um, that it might have started out as love. Uh huh. And so here here are some here are some things I would say. Now, please challenge me if if. Um, I can't wait. Yeah. All right. So. Um when when Catelyn and Roderick arrive in King's Landing do you remember they they get taken uh, immediately to one of Baelish's whorehouses right they're greeted at the gate and when Catelyn walks in she is furious and she starts cursing at Littlefinger how dare you bring me here you take me for some back alley sally Mm
0: -hmm.
2: she uh she calls him you little worm um, now let's notice there are a lot of things Littlefinger is called in this show that begin with the word little.
0: yeah, yeah.
2: and and they're part of this pattern of emasculation you were talking about. Absolutely.
0: Earlier.
2: But when when Cat he knows she's coming, he has sent for her. When she walks in and she's so ashamed that she has been brought to a whorehouse, mm-hmm. Littlefinger is sitting across the room as usual, and he's got two—he's got two uh, women, one on each side of him. Um, at least one of them is bare-breasted. I forget right now if the other one is or not. But this is very deliberate on his part to shame mm-hmm. Catelyn.
1: Yes, you're right.
2: Right. So what I have is a this is
1: not people. putting his best foot forward if, to the woman he he secretly loves. <laughs> That's what I'm
2: saying. Yeah, I just he wants to insult love. her. Right. He wants to insult her, right? And right. and so I think I have enough pieces of evidence, just like that one, uh-huh. to say it's not love. It's a deliberate attempt to torture emotionally. That's like when he wants to he wants to watch her open the box of Ned's mangled body. Right. You yeah. see him watch her as she opens it. He's going to enjoy that yeah um he wants to see her insulted at the uh here i'm just gonna have fun with the oed the cat house he brings cat to the cat house <laughs>
0: sure.
2: uh, he wants to enjoy that and he does and when she walks in he says cat he's like the you know boy he's really just uh at, mm-hmm. you know acting like the romeo over there and he has succeeded because she's extremely insulted Um, the same thing happens with Ned when he says, I, you know, I know where your wife is. And and Ned, you know, holds him up against the wall, pushes him up against the wall. Oh, you think you're a you're a funny man, aren't you? Mm -hmm. A very funny man.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um and that's the scene where after Ned finally puts him down, Littlefinger says to himself, ah, the Starks. Um, oh, I forget the first thing he says, but the second thing is slow minds.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Quick swords, slow magic or something like there that. There you go, right. I probably slow have mind. that wrong, but... Um, yeah, something like absolutely that, Absolutely, yeah. you're right. And that's a great, it's another great moment where sort of you've, you've got Ned and Littlefinger together for the first time in a long time, right?
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the scenes that for me is most powerful in kind of wrapping up this, I think it's very important to see that Game of Thrones is full of love stories, and it's also full of revenge stories. There are a lot of characters who want revenge for this or that. You know, um, mm-hmm. Aldrogo, Drogo, uh, Brienne of Tarth. Uh, Walder Solority. Frey. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So what, what I think is done so deftly, again, at the level of the literary writing, in a story world where you have so many different kinds of stories being told, is that what Littlefinger does so tactically, and he's so smart about it, is he tells a love story, but it's a masquerade for a revenge story.
1: Sure. Opinion. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. So the scene that I think is very powerful in this regard, it's actually the last scene when Ned and Kat see each other. And it's after the brothel, the meeting at the brothel. And remember, Catelyn's leaving. And they're out in the courtyard and um they're saying goodbye. And Catelyn uh, ned warns catlin to watch her temper and she says my temper and then she starts laughing and she says you nearly killed poor little finger yesterday uh, right. and they're both laughing they're both yeah. laughing yeah and then ned says he still loves you and catlin says does he Right, and that's that's the last thing they say to each other. I mean, well, and
1: she says it in a knowing way, like I hadn't noticed, but I kind of know, you know. It's sort of, and and she also says it in a little bit of a flirtatious way with Ned. Yes,
2: she does. I agree, she does. Now, now, you know, I think a couple things are happening in that scene that are really important, and it's another good example of with my students of not just watching for plot, Mm -hmm. because first of all, we have to notice. once we know with hindsight and lots of close reading that Littlefinger is this is a quest for revenge, he's not doing this because he loves Cat. You realize they're still believing the masquerade that everything Littlefinger does is for love of Cat. And of course, this is partly how they're both caught, not seeing the revenge that he's actually, it's actually mm-hmm. a revenge motive. So they st- we see they still believe it. He still loves you, Ned says. But let's notice they talk about Ned roughing. Littlefinger finger up they're both laughing they are laughing at little mm-hmm. they're laughing at him and we know from the whole dual you know 2.0 thing we've been discussing i mean little finger knows this that he has been demeaned and looked down upon and it's what he's fucking instead of you know mm-hmm. fighting mm-hmm. but um the other thing that's really important in the, at the literary level is that the story the, the showrunners, because like, I don't know if this is in the book or not, Anthony, it might very well be. But when they have Kat end that discussion by saying, Does he, with a question mark, mm-hmm. they have built into the story the place where there is a question about whether or not Littlefinger still loves her.
1: Oh, good. I love it. You yeah. see
2: what I mean? You get what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that is, and that, you know that's a literary method. Like they've put the question in the story that you are supposed to ask.
1: Interesting. Interesting. All right. Help me with one more thing because I feel like, like I said, I feel like I'm 95% there. So this is a show with masks. Everyone's wearing a mask. There's a very few players, you know, players on this uh, stage that don't wear a mask. Okay. Um, Littlefinger is sort of, is always has a mask on and and you and you called it out by sort of, you know, I'm telling a love story. I love I love Cat. I'm motivated by my love for Cat. Yeah. And in this way, I think it's sort of like Ned kind of thinks that that's really gross, but he thinks, yeah, but I can trust him because of course he loves Cat. Mhm. Right? So that's the story that he's choosing to tell. That is his mask. I've always read the scene where Littlefinger pushes Lysa out the moon door as Yeah my mask is, I'm going to let it slip just this one time and tell the truth. Mm-hmm. That's always how I've read that. He mm-hmm. says, I've only loved one woman in all of the world. That is your sister. Mm-hmm. And he pushes her out the moon door. Yep. And so I, I've always read that as, okay, finally we see his mask, mask slip. It's interesting mm-hmm. that that happens as he professes his love for Liza's sister. And that mm-hmm. that's partly why I think, like... Somewhere deep down inside, he does actually believe that he loves Kat. Mm-hmm. So okay. I don't know. Help me with that scene.
2: All right. So this is my reading of that scene. Um, this will return a little bit to something we said earlier, which is Does Littlefinger ever have sex?
3: Mm-hmm. And the
2: answer is once with Liza Aaron. And what are the reasons he has sex with her? Is it because he finds her very attractive? Is it because he loves her? No. So yeah. he's he's gonna kill Liza Aaron. We know he does not care about her, she's a pawn. But um one of the things about Littlefinger and uh his revenge on Catelyn and the Starks is that you know he uses a lot of different kinds of tactics to get his revenge. So returning again to the scene where he gladly he he initially tells Tyrion he will never collaborate with him again. Mm. And Tyrion says, uh, "That's that's a shame because uh you were going to play a major role in my next deception."
0: <laughs>
2: and then Tyrion says, "How would you like to see your beloved cat again?" So, as I said, Tyrion also believes the love story, but that's why. That's why Littlefinger agrees to work with him again when he has said he will never do so. It's because he gets to bring the bones. Uh-huh. In
0: there. Sure, sure, yeah.
1: And
2: he's going to enjoy that. And as I said, he does enjoy that scene. So, that's a scene where, um, that's an episode about torture.
1: Yeah, and he also gets to get, He also gets to convince Tyrion or let. Tyrion continue to believe that he loves Cat, which yes. I think he he benefits from that in some way, right?
2: Yes, I agree. He does. The same things happen when Barris repeats the story, um, sure. Littlefinger. Um, anyway, but um, that, that particular episode is an episode where there's a thread of torture running through the whole episode, which is the context for seeing what it means for Cat to have to look in that box. So Littlefinger is enjoying emotional torture in that particular scene um my reading of the murder of Liza Aaron is that this is emotional torture of Liza Hmm. that is look at what he does to her you know she's he he knows he's going to push her out the moon door but he wants to enjoy this last moment where he can say I've only ever loved one woman and you see the look on her face Yeah. yeah she's happy and then he says your sister sure That's, I don't think it's truth-telling. I think it's emotional. One last moment of emotional torture for one of the Tully girls before she Mm -hmm. goes to her death.
1: And to, okay, so to fortify your thesis here, one could say that that is part of his mask for Sansa, because Sansa's in the room witnessing this.
2: Oh, good, yeah.
1: And so he he absolutely needs to sell this narrative to sansa because sansa is sort of the next woman he intends to fuck metaphorically right
2: yes okay that's that's an excellent point you're right i was not thinking about that as we were discussing it but you're right sansa is going to hear that
1: this is i love it this has been uh delightful i i am so glad that we um connected oh me too
2: this has been so wonderful i i enjoyed it tremendously thank
1: you so much and let's connect again once you feel like you're done teaching this class i'd love to talk about the words on the page too
2: yes thank you so much for inviting me it's been a pleasure and uh really really um interested in seeing where you continue to go with the podcast